Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Katie Bedford. Katie Bedford, thank you so much for joining us in today's episode of Cassie and. So Katie, again, thank you. I would love to start with you telling the audience how we met each other and then a little bit about something about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I met uh, through an organization called Boys Club. So rewind like a year or maybe even two ago when all the the crypto world was blowing up with profile pics and there was lots of board apes out there. And basically Boys Club was created because they wanted a space for women and people who identify as non-male to go and learn about crypto in a non-judgmental environment without all the crypto bros. So I was drawn to it because I always like to stay ahead of the curve on tech trends for my clients. So I was looking into crypto, but I found it really intimidating. And so I landed on Boys Club, I learned a lot, and then I volunteered for their wingman program, which is basically where people who knew a little bit about the Web3 space would partner with newcomers to help onboard them and answer their questions. And so I was the mentor and you were the mentee, and that's how we met. You were. Yes, it was wonderful. You held my hand. I likened it to Frodo going on a journey with the Fellowship of the Ring and... It took some twists and turns. There were some Mines of Moria. Like whenever I finally started going through and setting up my wallet, it took longer than I thought, but I had all my notes. You walked me through because I really said, I want to be able to buy NFT. So you walked through all the steps you needed to do. And I had all my notes and I was like, thank goodness for Katie Bedford. But yeah, that's exactly how we met. I want the audience to hear a little bit more about you. What are you doing right now, Katie? Yeah, so I'm a business consultant and a strategist primarily for digital agencies. So these are like shops that create either websites or games or apps. And so I help them with all things on the business side. So that might be streamlining operations, helping them grow their business, kind of streamlining everything that goes on behind the scenes in order to make an agency run well. Yeah, so that's what I do. And it's lots of fun. And I've been doing it for a while now. And it's the landscape is changing pretty dramatically as technology is changing dramatically. So it's definitely an interesting time to be helping guide these agencies through these emerging technology shifts. Well, it sounds like your clients have websites or apps and things like that. They're probably fairly tech savvy to begin sure. with. What sort of emerging disruptive technologies are you seeing the most interested in right now? AI, for sure. Absolutely. I feel like it's like all the rage in basically every industry mm -hmm. right now, right? It's, we're at this point where everybody's trying to figure out what can this do for us? How can this make us, I think, partially more efficient, but largely more competitive? I think that's what people really care about, right? So even the people who might not be totally on board the AI train can kind of acknowledge the fact that their competitors are, and they better have at least a basic understanding in order to maintain their position. And so that's the biggest shift. And it's recent. 
right? Like chat GPT kind of launched, when was it? December, I feel like is when yeah, it kind November, of Yeah, November, December. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's when it started blowing up. And so I, I sort of feel like a lot of that happened over the time of year when people are shutting down for the holidays. And all of a sudden when people came back in January, it was felt like a very different world already. And now we're only July. And I feel like a lot of agencies are changing the way that they do business, or at least trying to incorporate AI um, in some of what they do and trying to figure out where the appropriate places to do that are and and what's not worth it. And I know you're a strategic digital consultant. So I imagine that your clients want to hear from you, like what AI tool works best for me, because there's so many tools out there. Even if we just say there's text-based, there's image-based, there's code-based, there's just a lot to go through. So do you find that your clients are a little bit overwhelmed by the options and they come to you saying, help us figure out what's right for us? Yeah, I mean, I would say that they sort of fit into three broad categories, right? There are the early adopters who are way ahead of the curve. They know all the different tools and they're in there playing with them, trying with them. And frankly, I'm often learning things for them because they've heard of tools (laughs) that I've never heard of. It kind of feels a bit like the Wild West, to be honest. There are new tools literally every day. So it's virtually impossible to stay on top of all of them. I think the best way is just to be open and have conversations with other people who are interested. And that's where you learn about it and then try the ones that seem like a good fit. So the one category of, of clients is the ones who are in there and already trying things. The second category is the people who know that they need to start using them, but aren't really sure what to use. And yes, those ones come to me and ask me questions about like, well, what tools do you use and how might we use this? And what are the the potential pitfalls of using it? And then there's the third group that's really sort of just not interested at this point in time. They feel like their processes are working okay. They don't really want to mess with it. I feel like there's a risk that those agencies will fall behind. But at the same time, those who get too far ahead of the curve, if they don't have a good company-wide policy, there is like a real risk of issues with data and privacy and security and other things that they need to be aware of. So having that like middle ground and trying things, but maybe not going too headfirst into it without having some sort of overarching strategy, I think is is the play. And I would also imagine that there, as you said, we're in the wild, wild west, and there are so many starting up, but they're not necessarily all going to make it. There are going to be Netscapes of generative AI. So there's even risk involved in just trying and starting to rely too much on certain tools. They may not be here in a year or two. So there's a little bit of hedging your bets right now with some of these companies that are popping up. Yeah, for sure. There's a few front runners. OpenAI is the one that comes to mind, right? They've created ChatGPT. But more than that, they are backed by Microsoft. And Microsoft has a vested interest in seeing that company do well because they basically are getting profit sharing until they recoup their investment. So I know that Microsoft has released like an enterprise version of this new tool called Copilot, I believe is the name. Mm -hmm. And so big organizations have already tried it and they are going to start rolling it out to other organizations. And that I think is, is a bit of a game changer because Microsoft is already trusted by a lot of enterprise organizations and they're sort of renowned for good security. So I feel like that type of application will have at least the big players feeling confident that this probably isn't going to go away tomorrow and our data probably isn't any less secure than what it is today. Because I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that as much as people are worried about privacy and security with AI, 
we are we have already moved to a place where everything is cloud-based. Mm-hmm. So there was already data and privacy concerns no matter where you have your information. It's just a matter of trying to make it as secure as possible. Right. And maybe just minimizing how many cloud-based systems you have your data spread across. But I was reading up on the Copilot program this weekend, and one feature of it that I think is really interesting is a semantic index that you can use to search across your entire instance of Microsoft, that ecosystem and semantic being, it's not just a keyword-based search. It, it's If I say Turkey Day, you say Thanksgiving, it's going to connect the two. So, so I work in e-discovery. So all of that like really got my brain going because that's a challenge that a lot of corporations have is their data is across different systems. It may be in shared networks, it may be in SharePoint, it may be in Teams, it may be in all these places. And then when you have to start finding all of your information that's necessary, maybe for an RFP, maybe for due diligence, maybe for discovery and litigation, knowing where all that data is stored and pulling that information together can be challenging. So for me, I I saw that and I got really excited, but. Yeah. And I think there's opportunities and, and I don't know about this, but I think of like large organizations that have been around for a long time and over time, their product lines or tools might have changed names. So, you know, if you're going back, I know on this project, we use this thing that's similar to what we want to do on this. I would hope that that like semantic language model would be trained enough on their data to know, oh, when somebody is saying this tool, they actually mean what's nowadays called this tool and able to pull those things together. I don't know if it would work like that, but I think that's like the dream, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's just we're overwhelmed with data these days and we're very good at creating it, but we're not so good at always keeping it well organized and and finding it after the fact. So yeah. I think there's a lot of really great potential there. Talking again about your role as a strategic advisor to companies, where what are the pockets of areas that you're seeing clients most interested in enhancing their workflows by using generative AI? Is it copy-based, image-based, or does it really depend on the client and their specific need and, and risk tolerance? It definitely depends on the client, but I would say copy-based is predominantly where people are are using it that I'm seeing. And so specifically, there's a couple different areas. One is when you need to do some strategic research about something up front, using these AI models, especially if you're using plugins that can like search the web and scrape data, is a great way to do like that high-level research that formerly might have taken you a long time of Google searching compiling lists of relevant websites on your own and then trying to draw comparisons. The tools that we have now can kind of scrape a bunch of data, come back and say, we found these five links, all of which are talking about this similar topic. And here are like the five main trends that show up again and again. Like that's a great starting place. You're still going to need a human being, a content strategist to come in and make sense of it and determine like how it would apply to their organization and what to do with it. But it takes that the heavy lifting of research, it does that for you. So that's one area. The other area with content is really about repurposing existing content. So there's a lot of agencies, they have great content. They've done a lot of thought leadership. They have great articles or white papers or videos. Like They kind of have all these different pieces of content and they want a way to 
quickly and easily repurpose it. So somebody gave a talk, let's pull out like the key points and turn it into interesting video for LinkedIn and images for Instagram and quotes for Twitter or whatever the case may be. But being able to do those sorts of things quickly and efficiently is a huge time saver. Yeah, I know that's something I want to play around with. I just haven't had time to take the transcripts. These Using the software I'm using to record this, I use Riverside and it will create a transcript of the podcast and how can I use various AI tools to kind of slice and dice the data? I just haven't had time to do that, but I think that's a great way to work smarter, not harder, and you're still working off of the core knowledge that you bring to the tables. I want to talk a little bit about training, but makes sense since you helped train me learn about crypto. And I think you're such a great teacher. Having worked in AI or with AI and machine learning for 10 years, I do think that there's a big knowledge gap between people talking about generative AI and and then maybe oversimplifying how easy it makes your life. Like they're not really talking about, well, you need to iterate. You need to like your, the first thing you ask ChatGTP is just like getting the ball rolling and then you want to refine it and clean. It's like you're Michelangelo chipping away at the marble. (laughs) And I don't think a lot of people are doing that. And I could see a lot of people getting disappointed and maybe employers not seeing the ROI come in if there's not sufficient training for their employees to use the tools. How much effort do you see people using and training their teams and using these tools so they can maximize the benefit of them? I think because of the fact that things are coming fast and furious and the tools are changing all the time, probably the best way to do training right now is to have the person in the organization that's most knowledgeable actually do like a screen share and record it. This is how I'm using it and show how many iterations it takes and shows how, show how you slightly modify a prompt to get closer to what you're looking for, right? Sometimes you ask the tool a question and it comes back with something that you're like, no, that completely misconstrued my my ask. So you start fresh. Other times you'll ask it and you'll get pretty close, but you're like, it's not quite what I want. And having somebody actually do like a, a walkthrough of that and then share it with the team. And then also doing things like lunch and learns, like say, okay, On the second Friday every month, we're all going to get in a room together and we're going to take turns sharing what tool we've been working on, what the pros are, what the cons are, and whether or not we recommend it for use in our organization or just move on. But yeah, I think a lot of it needs to be just conversational at this point and and sharing, knowing that things, the tool du jour might not be the next thing that you're using next week. (laughs) Right, right. And it could change. It could become easier. Who knows? We may plug in our brain to these tools at some point in the future, (laughs) and then we don't even have to type. We can just think our thoughts. Do you feel that people are getting like hyper fatigued by all the hyper cycle? Like it just seems like the high, there's just so much information. Do you find that people are having a hard time just staying on top of the trends or are they pretty good at this is what I'm going to focus on and I'm not going to worry about the other stuff? I think I think in the beginning, everybody was trying to try all the new tools that came out and that very quickly got completely overwhelming. So what I'm seeing more now is everybody's got like their favorite tools that day in and day out, that's the tool or the tools that they're using. Not only when there's a lot of hype around another tool does somebody go, oh, okay, maybe I'll pause on what I'm doing here and try this one that everybody else is talking about. But I know like for me personally, chat GPT is where I am most of the time. I feel like I get the best results from it. But I do go over to write Sonic when I'm trying to get the tone of voice right. I feel like 
right sonic does a better job of understanding my brand's tone of voice and and mimicking that and then i use midjourney for any image creation and i should point out that image creation is another area where digital agencies are definitely seeing big lifts it's not going to replace a designer you still need a designer to do the actual work but in those early phases of a project when you're trying to figure out what exactly a client wants instead of a designer going off and sinking 40 hours of time designing something only to have the client be like mm, that's the wrong direction we hate it they can quickly mock up a couple different things in a tool like Dolly or Midjourney, get a sense of what the client likes and then get into the real design work. So yeah, that's another image generation is another area where I think digital agencies can can really utilize those tools. Do you find any of them concerned about potential copyright issues of it may not get protected or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, that is definitely a concern. I don't think anybody knows where that's going to net out actually. Mm -hmm. And so again, like I feel like in terms of image creation, I don't know that I would be trying to copyright that and use it as a design, but to use it as inspiration and a jumping off point. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a great way to cut down on a lot of time upfront. And the interesting thing about Midjourney, I, I talked about this with one of my other guests and I, I realized this not too long ago it's not like you're logging into Midjourney's website and it's so it's not like OpenAI where you log in and you enter into their website and engage that way. You actually engage with Midjourney's algorithm through a Discord server. For me, I was like, wow, and I haven't gotten to play with it, but I obviously need to because I, I mean, Discord kind of stresses me out. I feel like it's information overload. It's it's like it it's like splat <laughs> on steroids. It's too much. It's all together. It stresses me out. And it's not like, I'm, it's not the tech of it. It is, there's so, because there are so many NFT projects, that's how they communicate. Boys Club, that's how we communicate. And it's really Boys Club and, and you know, maybe another one or two projects that has me go in there, but I still don't go in there very much. But do you find that the Discord entry point is is a learning curve for some people when you're talking to your clients? Oh, for sure. I mean, I feel the time that anytime you're asking anybody to use a new tool, period, there is a, a barrier, right? And I feel like Discord in particular, I don't know, it's it's not the easiest tool to use. It's great. It has its advantages for sure. You can have huge numbers of people in a single server communicating. So there are upsides to it. But I'm with you. I personally find most Discord servers that I'm in to be quite overwhelming and I don't go in very often. So at this point, there's one project that I check on regularly and another one that I check on maybe like once every three to six months. So I'm very right. behind in whatever's right. going on. Um, so yeah, I feel like the average person isn't going to sign up for a Discord, basically like username, just to get in and use something like Midjourney. I think that they will find other tools that they can use to to create images. I'm already in Discord. I'm already comfortable with it. So adding right. the, the Midjourney bot to my server was not a huge lift for me. Yeah. And I want to do it just because I'm not inclined to do it. So I'm like, well, I obviously need to do it if I feel uncomfortable about it. It's just having the time to actually like mentally prepare for that. I want to go back to something you touched on earlier, plugins, specifically chat GPT plugins. Mm -hmm. I have not taken the time. I've played with chat GPT, just the web-based version, but I know there are plugins available. 
Now, when I think of a plugin, I think of like an API connection and it lets you maybe have access to certain things. Or actually, when I heard talk of it, when I hear tell of the plugins, I thought it was more like a, a Chrome extension or a browser extension, but that's not really what the quote unquote ChatGPT plugin is. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think for the end user, it doesn't function that differently than like a Chrome extension would, to be totally honest. For those who haven't yet played with plugins, I'll give you like a a brief rundown of how it works. So when you log into ChatGPT, if you have a paid account, which is $20 a month, then you have access to ChatGPT 4. And in there, there is an option to select a toggle to add plugins. And then they have a plugin library. So think of that like your Google... Chrome extension library. And so you add plugins to do different tasks. So I have one in there that looks at, it's an SEO analyzer. And so if you want to look at websites and see what sort of, well, I used it for my own website to figure out how it was performing. What is my SEO ranking? Why, like, how can I improve it? What specifically do I need to do to improve this area? And And, and just to pause quickly, SEO is search engine optimization, if anyone doesn't know that. Yes, good call. Thank you. So with my own website, I knew that there was things about the SEO that weren't working well. But frankly, I didn't really know how to fix it. And so when I used this SEO analyzer plugin, I typed in my website URL and I said, review this website tell me how to make it rank better on Google. And it came back with like seven different recommendations. And then I said, great, for each of those recommendations, give me specific examples of how I can fix it. And then it gave me a step-by-step guide. And I went in and I made the updates on my website and I think it's doing a lot better. And that's just something that like I wouldn't have known how to do on my own. Even though I, I am tech savvy, I have different SEO reports coming in. I'm not savvy enough to understand what to do with the information in those reports. Well, and I think sometimes it's just having the time, like the having the flag from some reader that you might be able to use before a chat GPT plugin, it might just say you need to improve this thing. But generally, it doesn't really get into the minutia. The fact that it can take your draft that you wrote and then come back to you with recommended changed copy, really that's where making our lives easier comes into play. It's not the, well, I know I need to fix it, but if you're not telling me exactly how to fix it, you're not helping me that much. And that's really a game changer that it does do that. Yeah. Another thing that I like using it for is there's a plugin called, what is called? Link something. It's basically, it's giving you access to the web. And so what I use that one for sometimes is I will be writing something. And even though it's written by me, I'm not crazy about the tone of it. I'm like, oh, I want it to be more like the tone of the rest of my website. And I could make those updates, but it would take me a long time to fix it. So instead, I just take the chunk of copy that I've written, chuck it into ChatGPT and say, use the plugin to match the tone of this website and rewrite what I've just given you. And it brings it back and it's always great. It's always like, yes, that is exactly the tone I was looking for. And it's a task that would have taken me a half hour, maybe an hour of like futzing around and trying to make sure that it just sounds exactly pitch perfect. And instead it's doing it for me. I'm still doing the writing. I'm still wrote the initial website and it's using my tone. Right. Um, but it's just making my life easier. And back about SEO for a second, like, It's not going to eliminate the need for an SEO specialist. If you're a big business, you're still going to need somebody to come in and 
give you an overarching strategy and figure out how to really rank on Google. But if you're small and just looking to make minor updates and don't understand like the basics of what's wrong, it's a fantastic tool to help you out. Well, and going back to the copy, the style edits, I could see that being very powerful. Of course, assuming you're using a tool and you're comfortable with what you're sharing with ChatGPT, I've been on projects where maybe you're editing, you're taking over writing something someone else wrote, or multiple people have edited it, or you're working off of something that's been Frankenstein. So you're taking an element here and you're taking something from another document and you're taking something from another document and it has the core information that you want, but you can tell it's been Frankenstein. It like the flow of it, all of it's different. Yeah. That kind of editing is so tedious and time consuming and frustrating. So I could yeah. see a tool like that being extremely powerful whenever you're just trying to create efficiencies and not recreate the wheel. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I know companies like Grammarly, Grammarly has like long been the the go-to tool for fixing your your grammar and your spelling. I know they market it a lot to people who like English is their second language, but English is my first language and I get a lot out of my Grammarly <laughs> subscription. It catches a lot of mistakes for sure. <laughs> but yeah, even they have new tools that are using AI. And I think depending on which subscription you buy, there is one if you're in a larger organization and you have it for the whole company that yeah, you can put in your brand tone of voice and it will always correct everybody's work, which you can imagine if you have 50 people. Wow having all 50 people writing in a consistent tone of voice would dramatically reduce the amount of time that everybody else spends reviewing, editing, revising before something is public facing ready. That's pretty darn amazing. I love that. I want to go back to something we talked about earlier about you helping me get my crypto wallet because I was very interested in NFTs. Now, that was back in the halcyon days of NFTs. We've since seen a little bit of a crash lately, but that doesn't mean all tokens don't have a a use or utility. And I know that you've written some about things like social tokens and and some of the NFT projects I, I joined and bought into is because there was a utility aspect to it. But can you tell the audience a little bit about what social tokens are? Because I think it's very interesting. Yeah, sure. So when we talk about Web3, we're really just talking about like the next iteration of the internet. And so it's decentralized and built on blockchain technology. And so this is where I'm going to say like full disclosure, I am very, very bullish about blockchain technology. I don't really believe in the future of of crypto. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't have a lot of money in crypto and I've always been a bit wary about it. But blockchain technology... Yeah, for sure. I think that's going to be around for a very, very long time. I think it's actually going to become ubiquitous and that to the end user, we won't even know a lot of times when things are built on blockchain technology. It will just be an app or a tool that works really, really well and we don't understand what goes on in the back end. So all that being said, social tokens are basically a piece of information that is stored on the blockchain that the owner of that token kind of holds in their wallet is what we call it in in Web3. And so where I think the interesting cases for social tokens are, and specifically for brands, things like loyalty programs. So you already have tons of companies that have loyalty programs and they might have an app or they might have like a physical card, but the idea of storing that same information on the blockchain and potentially allowing the, the users you know, the people in those loyalty programs to swap tokens or trade tokens or buy and sell things like that is 
to me, that really is like a whole new avenue of loyalty programs that has never been done before. Normally it's like you get points or Starbucks dollars, whatever the case may be, depending on what purchases you make. But the idea that you could like make purchases and then swap those tokens for somebody like to somebody else and basically sell that is something that I think companies are going to start allowing. A lot of times things are non-transferable, but if it's on the blockchain and it's all there for everybody to see, you don't need to worry about people double dipping or scamming the system because each token is verified on the blockchain. You can see exactly who it first went to, whose wallet it went into next. Yeah, I think that there's lots of really interesting things that companies could do with loyalty programs. Another kind of interesting use case, I think, for social tokens is proof of attendance. So what I like to call this is like the new concert t-shirt. So you know when you go to a concert and you buy that t-shirt that costs you like five times as much as if you just bought it in a store. <laughs> right. But you buy it because you want people to know like I was there. I was actually at that concert. I'm not just a fan of this band. I was at this concert. And so your proof of attendance is basically that. It's like a concert t-shirt. It says that you were here at this event and that is like your street cred. That is an example that is non-transferable. It stays with you forever. And I think like, you know, I'm using the the concert example, but I think it would be something that actually even things like universities could use. If you were doing like a webinar, an online course, something that people need to give proof to their employer or their teacher, whatever, that you were there, this is a great way to have that non-transferable, verifiable proof that you had done something. So I think that's another example that we're going to see a lot of that. Yeah. And Um, I've heard people talk about the band kind of use of the social token, just like the power of knowing, let's say a band was really into social tokens, even as they were starting up and they're playing and kind of a divey place, but they gave a a proof of attendance NFT to people there. And then over the years, they blow up and they're huge. The power of being able to say anyone who has a proof of attendance from our first few years, and we were just playing at the dive bars, you get first access to our concert tickets. You get access to limited release drop. You get access to limited merch. To me, that's incredibly powerful. And I find that Web3 and that kind of use of token to be a great way to empower fans and musicians and artists and things like that. So I find it very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a great idea. I hadn't even really thought about that, like going back in time and being like, okay, to our early supporters, we want to do something for you, like just as a thank you. There are bands that are doing basically profit sharing. So there's a company called Royal.io and they partner with bands that want to do record releases through that platform. Now, all the music that is released there, from what I understand, is also available on like any other streaming service. So you can go and listen to these songs for free at any point in time. But if you want to buy a token through Royal.io, basically you're giving some money to the band up front, you're supporting them because you're a fan, but in return, you get a percentage of profit sharing for their streaming royalties. And so what is interesting about this is it creates this really like symbiotic relationship between the band and the fan. Because as a fan, if you have a stake in royalties, it's gonna be in your best interest to hype that band. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like get the word out there to promote the album. And as the band, if all of a sudden you have this army of people that are doing your promotion work for you, that really limits the amount of marketing that you need to do on your end. So I think that's another like really interesting way of building a community around a band and sharing in the success of that band's um I think it creates a huge opportunity for indie artists, whether it's indie musicians, indie mm-hmm. graphic novels, indie movies. I'm a Gen Xer, and I just remember the the boom of indie music, graphic novels, movies in the '90s. Oh, it was so good, and I, I mm-hmm. hate being that person. It was so great when I when I was a kid. But I feel like that's what people want, and that's what we're kind of seeing on TikTok. Some musicians are getting found on TikTok, so I just yeah. see it as a great kind of extension of that technology and that it's like crowdfunding in a way. So it's just a further extension of that. Well, and crowdfunding is like another use case for social mm-hmm. tokens, actually. So like getting away from from artists for a minute, if you were a business, let's say you have like one location and that location is doing well and you would love to open up a second location, but it's a lot of money. You need a lot of capital up front to open that location. You might say, hey, you know what? We're going to go to our existing community, people that come in, We're going to ask them to basically donate money to help us kickstart this campaign to to build this new location. Everybody who does it is going to get a social token. Maybe they get like a cool, hip local artist to do the artwork for it. So you have something cool in your wallet to show off. And then anybody who buys into it gets some sort of, again, like profit sharing. So they're kicking money in up front. And then they, it doesn't necessarily need to be like the profit of the business, but it could be that if you are, a brewery that all of your early adopters get one six pack a month for life or whatever the case may be, right? Whatever makes sense for that business. But the idea is that you could quite easily find a way to get people to invest and have it on the blockchain. So you know exactly who did it, exactly how many people are there. You never have to worry about somebody coming in and being like, oh yeah, yeah, I was, I was an early adopter. Can I have my six packs? Like, well, no, because you don't have this thing on the blockchain that shows your wallet was the one that it went into. (laughs) Right. And I personally think there's so many great use cases. I think that there is some hesitation of people to really pursue it because of the murky regulatory landscape right now. And I'm hoping that will get cleared up soon. And that might open up the floodgates and have a little bit more activity and and play around with that. But I I think that there are a lot of excellent utility use cases for non-fungible tokens, NFTs beyond the PFPs. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I I agree. And I think that the regulation is one thing. I actually think the bigger barrier is people just not understanding the basics of like how to set up a wallet. It's a super Mm -hmm. janky experience. And so <laughs> I know. Like I said, I went to Mordor and back trying to get mine set up. I still I have a ledger wallet. I have I have a cold wallet that I haven't I haven't set up yet because I'm not emotionally prepared for that right. yet. And you know, the challenge is, Katie, we are busy people. We're busy. We yeah. don't have a lot of time. And you need time to learn this stuff because it's not necessarily intuitive. And you need time to stay on top of your Discord server. So I feel that. The time element is the biggest part, especially if you want adopters that are just don't have a lot of time on your hand. It's hard. But yes, the wallet needs to get a little bit easier. For sure. And I think that down the road, it will. I'm not sure how. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how they will technically solve that issue. But I think 
in order for there to be mainstream adoption, it has to be as simple as what people are already accustomed to, which is like you have a password, you log in, and you're in the app. And I think, you know, down the road, like I said, I don't think people will be aware that this cool app that they're using is built on blockchain technology. They'll just know I have this profile and inside this profile are my tokens and they might not even call it that. Maybe they'll call it passport stamps or who knows. The point is that I think there's going to be a lot that's built on blockchain technology that the average user won't know. The example I always use is like the way my Visa credit card works, right? I use my Visa all the time. All I know is that when I need to make a purchase, I tap it or I enter in the number and it goes through. I also know by the fact that when I go to my visa statement for something that I just purchased 10 minutes ago or even a day ago, and the fact that it's not showing up yet or it's showing up in being processed, that there is a whole bunch of stuff going on in the back end that I am not aware of and I don't need to be a part of. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's happening. And so I feel like with blockchain, it will come to that. You'll just use this app. It'll just work. And the average user will be completely unaware of how the blockchain works, of what exactly it means. It will just mm -hmm. function the way that the end user needs it to function. Yeah. The important thing is for people to realize it is public. So maybe don't buy anything with a wallet that you don't want anyone knowing. You don't want your grandmother know, to know you bought or, you know, those are just things to think about. But I think you're absolutely right. I think wallet ease of setup is a huge barrier to entry. And, you know, I've even bought some NFT. I bought like the Barbie NFT. I have to. <laughs> and I honestly, I don't know where it is. You know, it's so easy to set up. You just go log in and I bought, paid for it with my credit card. I didn't do use any of my like any of my wallet because I just wanted to see what it was like. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of like little orphan assets out there. We're, we need to figure out how to bring them all together. So that's another kind of thing to worry about. But yeah, I don't know for another day, I guess. But well, Katie, here at the end, I would love to hear your closing thoughts or words of advice for our audience. Yeah, I think my best advice, I'm gonna, well, with all emerging tech, but particularly with AI, because I feel like this is like the big thing that everybody's focused on. I think if you are a company right now that is nervous about using AI, unsure, or just feeling overwhelmed, even if your stance is that you are not going to use AI, you need to have an AI policy. You need to have a policy to ensure that other people in your organization are not using AI in a way that you don't want them to. So regardless of whether or not you're happy this is here, it's here. And you need to figure out where you stand and what you will and will not allow. I think that would be my number one takeaway, my number one piece of advice for, for anybody who is leading up an organization or responsible for ensuring the correct behavior of people underneath them. As an attorney, I highly approve that closing message. Very, very relevant. So Katie Bedford, thank you so much for joining us in this episode. I know I've learned a few things and I'm sure the audience has too. Thank you so much for joining us and to the audience. Uh, thank you for joining and we hope you stick around for the next episode of Cassie and...